How does the Internet of Things facilitate cybercrime? And what steps should organizations take to reduce the risk that their IoT devices will be unwittingly used for cybercrime? I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with attorney Stephen Tepler of the Abbott Law Group. Stephen, who leads the law firm's complex litigation and electronic discovery practice, will be talking to us about the emerging cybercrime risks involving IoT devices. So Stephen, what worries you the most about IoT devices and the potential for them to be used for cybercrime? For instance, are there certain kinds of IoT devices and certain kinds of potential cybercrime that are most worrisome? Yes and yes. According to Gartner, there'll be 30 billion, 40 billion IoT devices in play in existence and being used by the end of 2020. We're talking a huge number of devices that are connected to each other, to other types of devices, to mobile devices, to desktops, to servers. And one thing that is worrisome to me, uh, apart from the current state of zombification of these devices owing to their lack of security, is their lifespan and how the code that's embedded in them can turn problematic. And, you know, currently what's happening with IoT devices is that they're being used for a variety of criminal acts, either for denial of service or they're being used for crypto mining, cryptocurrency mining, by using basically using the processor, whatever processing power is embedded in these devices, across a wide span of them, thousands or perhaps tens of thousands of them or more, and these are being used to mine for cryptocurrencies. So now, Stephen, to date, what have been the most significant examples of IoT devices and their appeal to cyber criminals? What strikes me as the poster child for the type of criminal activity you're speaking would be the Murray botnet. The Murray botnet is something that swept the Internet in 2017 and caused massive, massive denials of service. And the way it started out was as a gaming booter. It was a booter service, and you might ask, what's a booter service? And a booter service is a program that is used in online games to kick other people off games. And why is that important? Well, if you have a game in which you're, everybody who you're playing with, with whom you're playing, is seeking some loot or treasure or points or some advantage, if you see someone who's about to overcome you or take that loot before you or whatever, if you can basically use a booting service, you can kick them off the island, so to speak, you get them, you know, boot them from the game, then he'll have to come in and he'll be behind you, or she'll be behind you. And so what this was able to do is is just basically go into these massively multiple player games and basically rig the games in favor of the people who, who used it. Then what was interesting about this is that one of the developers created a scanner that was ultimately incorporated into this code. Then this code would scan the Internet for devices with an open port and then attempt to gain unauthorized administrative access to those devices by entering a series of login credentials. Some of these credentials in in a lot of IoT devices are either hard-coded, which means they're hard-coded and fixed, and you can basically guess them, you know, because it would be admin or something like that, 
or there would be no authentication provided or no security in it. So it could be exploitable. And then what would happen is that this now became a very, very powerful and scalable denial of service weapon. And the programmers, actually, this uh, phrase has been in existence for a while, but they were offering it as a service, was crime as a service. So the Mirai and its, its variants, and there were about 24 unique variants, were created between August and September of 2016, and it took down a huge, huge, huge number of computers worldwide. It had what was called an insane amount of firepower. Victims targeted in the U.S., 50% of the victims were in U the U.S., 6% of the victims were in France. It took down a DNS provider, a large Liberian telecom operator called Lone Storm Cell. It even took down the security site Krebs on security. And part of the problem is that this exposed the inherent vulnerability and susceptibility to exploits either from security vulnerabilities or from inherent programming defects of these devices. And because these devices are, they're clones, they're all clones of each other, or, and a lot of them use common code, but even within one category of devices, you'll have tens of thousands of these devices. So when you have access to one of these devices, you have access to all of its identical twins, to all of its clones that are out there. So it's, it's monoclonal culture is makes it susceptible to vulnerability exploits and other problems on an orders of magnitude more than like a single event or a single data breach might. So Stephen, what about organizations, commercial organizations, whether they're healthcare entities or other sorts of organizations, in terms of identifying the IoT devices in their entities that could be susceptible or vulnerable to these sorts of attacks and cybercrime activity, what are some of the difficulties that these organizations have in terms of even identifying what devices could be at risk? And once they identify these devices that could be at risk, how do they go about protecting these devices? What we recommend, what I've, uh, in, in consulting, what I recommend, number one, is that you have to look at this in terms of not only technology, but as a kind of a combination of policy and time. And the reason I mentioned time is that you can have a snapshot, and if you do a good job, you'll take, uh, you'll take a picture of your network at any given time and do a network map, create a network map, see who's connected to your network, see what's connected to your network know what's connected to your network, and if there's something that you are not familiar with, which you're not familiar, you will then basically you know, investigate and maybe remove that from the network or quarantine or to do whatever you need to do. The problem is that you have so many people with so many devices from coffee pots to watches to any one of a number of connected devices that can be brought in and added to a network that you almost have to do this, on a, especially if you're in a medium to large business, on a continuing basis. It's not, well, I'll take a snapshot every week, see what's changed, and if something else, somebody has added, you know, a refrigerator or a mini refrigerator or a stove or what have you, you know, in case if it's a very, very large organization, or even somebody works from home, you really have to be very vigilant. And then you have to have a policy of this is a BYOD, a bring-your-own-device problem on steroids. 
because now you have devices that you can't necessarily brick. You can't know how they operate because you haven't, you, the organization, hasn't set them up. You have no control over shutting them down. And if they have access to the network, there may be code inside their embedded code, which once inside the network will start, you know, scanning for whatever it is might be vulnerable and susceptible to attack. So once an organization gets a better handle on what sort of devices might be out there and maybe they map it, they have some sort of program to maybe even have employees perhaps, you know, inform them of some of these devices coming into these organizations, what should they do? There's like so many manufacturers, there's so many products probably that show up that you don't even realize are IoT devices, what's your advice for them to protect themselves from these devices being used for these sorts of activities by cyber criminals? You prohibit their usage, number one. You prohibit their, one would prohibit their, their usage within the enterprise. The second might be to set up a separate network that's not connected to the organization's primary business operation network so that if something happens, it can be contained within that network and not kind of populate and and travel. That would take a little bit of engineering, but not impossible. It's got a little bit more of a resource burden for setting up and maintaining, but it would keep the potential vagrants off your network. You know, and then even if you allow them within your network and you say, okay, you know, these devices look clean, what about when they have to be updated? How do you know that the update is going to be as safe, assuming that the the first instantiation of embedded code is going to be safe? How do you know that any update will be as safe or as secure? I read just in this last week where people have been, what's been discovered is that you can place certain malware in self-signed certificates. And if you can start placing malware in certificates because there's room in them, you know, once you authenticate it, if, if a small IoT company with a, with a self-signed cert decides to use it for authentication purposes, you can imagine what can happen as the authentication process happens with users and then the ability to transmit and have the, the malware proliferate in all the target devices. And Stephen, when it comes to organizations, who do you think should be responsible for the IoT problem? Is it a matter of the security team? I know that often in healthcare organizations, there's often debate of who is responsible for medical devices. Is it the security people? Is it the biomed people and the engineering departments? What's your sense of how this is being handled or how it should be handled moving forward? For medical devices, I believe that you would probably need a a coordinated effort between your engineering and your security and your information security. They have to talk to each other, and it would be something that would have to be done on an ongoing basis. You'd actually have to have a, a written policy and some sort of enforceable, auditable policy in order to be able to really take advantage of each area's forte, of each area's talents. But it's something, in the end, it is a security matter. It is an information security issue. And first and foremost, I think that your security people 
who I think in the healthcare industry have gone, I won't say unrecognized, but you know their position in the ecosystem is not as high as it should be, and their influence is not as high as it should be. And I think in large part because they're looked at as, you know, they're not a profit line. They're a pure cost item when it comes down to looking at your, at your P&L. So, but that has to change because the one time that something happens that you get hit with a, with a DDoS or you get hit with ransomware, the cost for that can be many, many, many times that which you would have paid to reasonably, to take reasonable steps to prevent it. But again, it's the security people who are going to be largely at the forefront of the effort. Thanks, Stephen. I've been speaking to attorney Stephen Tepler. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.